dedicated to each and every one of you who appreciate a great glass of wine. You know what I mean? It's Monday. Let's raise a glass to the beginning of another week. It's time to unscrew, uncork, or saber a bottle. And let's begin exploring the wine glass. Happy Memorial Day. As we enjoy our barbecues and outdoor fun, let's take a moment to remember exactly what this day represents. A memorial to all those who gave the ultimate sacrifice to defend our country and to their families who lost their loved ones in doing so. With today being the unofficial start of summer, I am doing a little relaxing myself and decided to do a best of episode. Today's episode dates back to November of 2019 and is one of my top listened episodes. Wines of Australia with Mark Davidson. I'll be back next week with a new episode. In the meantime, I hope you enjoy listening and enjoy your holiday. Thanks for listening to Exploring the Wine Glass podcast, the podcast for people who love wine. I'm Lori Budd, a UC Davis winemaking program and WSET Level 2 graduate. You can find Exploring the Wine Glass on all the socials, as well as your favorite podcast catchers. If you haven't subscribed yet, now's the perfect time. I promise I'll never tell you what to drink, but I'll always share what's in my glass. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Allure of the Poor. Today, I am so excited to sit down with Mark Davidson, Education Manager for North America for the Wines of Australia. If I'm giving full disclosure here, this episode should have been released over a month ago as I was lucky enough to attend the Far From Ordinary Roadshow in New York City and interviewed Mark on the streets. However, technology failed me and the recording was not acceptable. Luckily, Mark was kind enough to take time out of his very busy schedule to sit down with me again so that I can share the wines of Australia with you. I am a huge fan and I think that if you try these premium wines that are really $20 to $50 range, you will become a fan also. Enjoy. Slancha. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Exploring the Wine Glass, sponsored by Dracina Wines. I'm your host, Lori, a UC Davis winemaking graduate and WSET Level 2 graduate. Today on Allure of the Poor, I am sitting down with Mark Davidson, who is the Education Manager for North America at Wines of Australia. So uncork, unscrew, or saber your favorite bottle and sit down and enjoy the conversation. So hi, Mark. How are you doing? Hi, Laurie. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. Thank you so much for taking time out of your, I'm sure, very, very busy day in order to uh, talk with me. My pleasure. Always happy to talk wine. Yes. Uh, yes. That's not a stress. Um, so we actually met, well, uh, you were in New York City, and I went to uh, the Wines of Australia in New York City. And um, it first of all, it was incredible. Let me just get that out of the way. Um, the, not only, not only the rooms themselves, which were incredible, but the actual um, the wine blew my mind. And I have to share this with you um, because I kind of blame you for this. 
the day after the New York event, um, well, actually, at the New York event, the winery you took me to to say this is where you have to start off. That's a great place to start any day, really, isn't it? So um, you brought me to, and am I pronouncing it correct? Is it is it Jens? Yeah, it's Jans. Correct, absolutely. Okay, so this is from Tasmania, but you brought me there, and I have to admit, I kind of went back a couple of times after you left me, and the very next day, I went online on a mad hunt to find this wine. And I bought the last six bottles <laughs> that was at Wine Chateau. Perfect. And my it, job's done. <laughs> and it might have been the longest week of my life for it to get delivered. It was only 15 miles away from me, but they, they were like, no, we're going to deliver it. And it took a week for them to deliver it 15 miles. <laughs> but um, I'm down to you three. Though. <laughs> yes. <awesome. laughs> I'm down to three bottles. So I'm going to have to go exactly. through the whole process again and find, find another location. <laughs> um, but before we get into the wines of Australia, if we, you can share a little bit about yourself. How did you come to become education manager of the wines of Australia? Oh, good. Um, it's a convoluted path, but I guess um, I was uh, at school. I was not one of those kids that knew what they wanted to do. <laughs> so I think I wanted to go surfing and hang out with girls. I think when I was asked by the uh, counselor, uh, but I did um, get into restaurants at a young age and kind of found the energy and the um, yeah, there was sort of a dynamism I think in, in restaurants that I enjoyed. So I got into I got into a hotel and restaurant management program in in Sydney where I grew up and actually started in kitchens, made my way to the front of the house, ended up sort of um, bartending and, and and serving and and uh, uh, working on the floor, and then just did a wine course one day because I was sort of vaguely interested and thought, oh, this would be kind of fun. I'm selling this stuff. This might be fun." And that was it. The door was open. It was a really simple thing, like learning that, oh, wow, Puy Frise is actually made from Chardonnay. Why does it taste different from that California Chardonnay I'm selling? And that was it. Door was open, and I kind of flew right in there, did my sommelier diploma. Um, then I moved around a bit. I was in Toronto for a bit, and then I was in Vancouver. And then when I was in Vancouver, I set up a wine education school while I was still working in restaurants. Uh, ended up teaching wine classes for a long period of time, went through WSET, did all those works, did the diploma long, <laughs> fairly long time ago. Um, and then was ended up, ended up teaching, doing a little bit less work in restaurants, ended up teaching for the International Semitic Guild many years ago in, in both in the US and in Canada. Um, and then I got approached. I was doing a seminar at one point, and the people from Wine Australia approached me and said, hey, we have a job for you. There's, um, you know, it was almost 10 years ago now. And we have a bit of an issue with the image of Australian wine right now, and we want to get down and do some grassroots programs to get people thinking correctly about Australian wine. And uh, I thought, oh, that sounds like a cool project. Um, so, yeah, that's sort of how I got there. So, sort of the Coles Nose version of it. But, yeah, hospitality pretty much all the way, and then wine and wine education. So, they had to twist your arm to take the job, right? Uh, actually, initially they did. Really? Um, I was doing something else. Well, only because it was a US-based position initially, and I was living in Vancouver. My daughter was at an age where it was like, oh, I'm not going to move. So they kept coming back to me, and we managed to make it work out of Vancouver for a while. I did end up moving to the States for a period of time. Uh, then 
the carrot that was always dangled was that I can do this job globally. And I went around and worked with all the global teams for a few years, mm. which is great as that was, it does wear on you after a while, all the travel, but, um, but love that got to see what the rest of the world is, is doing, not just with, with Australian wine, but wine in general. And yeah. So, but now I'm back to, to focusing on North America. So still get up to Canada from time to time, but mostly the U S. Yeah, the uh, you know I live by coastal, and people are like, oh, that must be so great. You're always in the air, and I'm like, yeah, I'm always in the air. <laughs> yeah. I love people that say to me they love business travel, man. You just haven't done enough of it. <laughs> Nobody loves business travel. You manage business travel, right? Right. It it takes a lot, and I guess it really wouldn't be so bad if you could just poof yourself on the plane and poof yourself off of the plane. But getting to the airport, the delays, the you know the the misconnection connections, yeah. all of that stuff. Yeah. Real fun. <laughs> Cancel flight, misconnection. Anyway, it's all good fun. Though, but you shouldn't complain. It's a pretty dynamic, fun business. Though. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so let's get into Australia a bit. So the U.S. is okay. Australia's second largest export market. So approximately how much of the percentage of the wines are actually exported versus how much are they keeping because they love their wine? Oh, I wish I had those figures off the top of my head, and I probably should because you did ask me this last time, and I probably should know this. But I think there's a little bit of a myth. A good proportion of Australian wine is exported, um, but uh, I think there's always been a little bit of a myth that, oh, I go down to Australia and I try all these amazing wines, and people say, I, I think you keep all your best wines down there. Well, I actually don't. That's not actually 100% true. There are some small boutique wineries that you're less likely to see anywhere exported because they're just so small and they're sold uh, domestically. You could apply that to pretty much any country. But right now we're sitting in a really good place globally, but specifically in the U.S. with a lot of people entering the market either for the first time or again. And we've just seen a lot of increased exports to the U.S. at a higher price point, which has been a really positive thing for us, which has been the, the goal we've had since I started with the, the organization, which is – you know, get people drinking better and, you know, higher quality Australian wine. So um, I'd say, I, I wish, honestly, I should have those numbers. I can certainly get them to you, but it's, uh, we do export a fair bit. Yeah. So I, going back to the high quality and a little bit higher price point, um, I personally think this Jans is incredible. Um, and I, I adore it and it would be my house sparkling if I could get more of it. And I only paid $21 a bottle for it. So, uh, yeah. I mean, that when when I was going online to look to purchase it, I was like, oh, this is going to cost me a pretty penny. This is going to cost me a pretty penny. And when I saw $21, I was like, yep, clear clear the shelves. You know, it's, it's well, incredible. Yeah, it is. Really, I think that is the nice thing. And I think, I mean obviously there's exceptions that prove the rule, but the reality is right now in Australia, I think you drink very well at what would be considered still premium prices, but we're not talking, you know, wallet busting prices uh, in that 15 to $40 price range. Oh man, the whole country opens up basically. And like you say, you know, you've got a Tasmanian sparkling wine uh, made with Chardonnay Pinot and Pinot Meunier, same grapes they're using in Champagne. Um, and it's mid twenties. I mean, you've got it for 21. I see it floating around the country for somewhere between 21 and 26. So that's the price point for that wine. And it's amazing. It, and yeah. And after I left the, um, the far from ordinary event, I did do a little more research and finding Australian bottle bottles. They really are very price 
um, friendly, I should say, you know, yeah, um, for sure. And, for sure. And I think that yeah, people, and I think also what it, deli- what they deliver, even at a really premium and is incredible value for money. And, and, and I think you can apply that from 25 to 40 above 40, you know, wines that are pushing a hundred dollars. They're just, you know, what they're delivering for the, for, you know, well, they're over delivering in many cases. And I say that, you know, as a wine lover of, of you know, a lover of the global wines, I think, Australia, what Australia is doing right now is amazing. It's really exciting. Yes. Um, so we met at what the event was called was Far From Ordinary Roadshow, and you had a very busy month. You were you were traveling for pretty much a month straight, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, that was a, a big event in New York that kicked off a, a six-city campaign, which was a roadshow uh, that went around the U.S. Uh, but, yeah, started in, in New York, went to Chicago, then to Miami, Dallas, L.A., San Francisco. Um, and then there was a big sort of trade-only event that we did in Lake Tahoe, which culminated sort of tidied up the entire thing. But it was not quite connected to the roadshow, but it was still, a, 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 you know, a connected to this sort of campaign of immersion in Australian wine. Oh, Lake Tahoe. Ooh, if you can remember my name for that one next year, that would... <laughs> that, is awesome. that is awesome. Um, okay, so the Far From Ordinary Roadshow um, was show, demonstrated so many, a different, so much of an array of wines, so much that they offer, so much more than just Sauvignon Blanc, you know, and uh, the Australian government has actually now... Uh, given $50 million into the endeavor of educating the world, I guess, that you are, Australian wines are so much more than the little critter guy that has been around. Um, and really the the cheaper, or I don't want to say cheaper, lower tier wines that are out there. So yeah, that's pretty incredible that the government is willing to do that. Yeah, it's great. It's a really uh, uh, we were super excited. We're actually coming to the end of it. That uh, we've been we've had that uh, access to, to to additional funds for the last few few uh, years, and it culminates in what we've done here, and also some programs in China because China and the US really got the focus of, of the uh, the funds. Um, but yeah, it is. It's amazing, and and I think what we've done with it has been been pretty exciting. It is probably important to remember that prior prior to this, we were working on different sort of levies and what have you. And the reality is that if you compare what government funding we get for wine promotion to compared to Italy, Spain, Portugal, we're not even in the game, even with that additional money. Um, and that's not a complaint. Just a reality check is that we've not been funded in that in that sort of a way. We don't have them. Uh, so. Historically, we've always been very frugal and done really cool things with not a lot of money. So when we did get some money, we blew it out of the water, I think. We did some really, really good, uh, impactful events and activations, and I was extremely proud. I've been in the wine business a long time, but I was incredibly proud of what um, the country of Australia, the winemakers, and, and my team at Wine Australia did over the last sort of six weeks. It's pretty amazing. And the uh, part of the roadshow was educational so now you did have a trade section a trade portion of it but then you did have a consumer portion of it and this education seminars that you were offering uh to the to the trade uh what were some of the the highlights of what you know if you had to bullet you know point maybe three things that you want 
out there to the world about Australian wines? What would these seminars trying to get oh, through? It's a good point because we're trying to cover off different subject matters and, and change it around a little bit from city to city. In New York, we talked about cool climates, the attitude and altitude. Attitude, altitude, and oceans. <laughs> um, so the attitude's important in Australia for sure. Um, so I, I guess to to encapsulate in three things, it's kind of hard, hard I guess, because there's so many things to talk about. Um, marketing types don't like the word diversity, but that's the reality. I think quality, diversity, and probably just the, this. There's a character and a personality to Australians making wine that I think is. I think it transfers into to, to how the wines feel and, and how the wines taste, which I think is important. So I think character, quality, and personality would be the three things that we were trying to drive home in that, you know, and as I've said more than once, um, it's not like Australia. Australia doesn't have indigenous grape varieties. They've all come from, from elsewhere. Um, the winemaking techniques we use, there's been a lot of innovation, a lot of new things that have happened, but generally speaking, they're adaptations of things that, being used elsewhere grapes have been grown in, in 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 sometimes in different ways but for the most part it's viticulture that's globally sort of adapting and and, and moving around but yet our wine tastes different you know our, our varieties grown in parts of australia don't taste the same in other parts of australia never mind around the world so what are the characteristics and i do think um how australia is like the the, the landscape and the environment but also a very very important piece of the puzzle is how we are as people how we are settled as a country and how we um interact with uh you know culturally and, uh, with wine i think it's really important i think it comes through in the wines so going back to australia the the as a community right you said that there's there are no indigenous grapes to to australia is there yeah. a is there yeah. a link to who decided hey it might be good to grow some grapes here and start that is that is that documented anywhere yeah sure it's um there's a lot of people that were bringing grapes with the first uh fleet i always want to say first fleet of settlers but everyone wants to correct me and call them convicts but whatever it's just a term uh <laughs> but realistically they they grapes were brought out with the first fleet of settlers or convicts but uh, and then but what was probably more impactful were the people who deliberately went about trying to make quality to wine. There was you know, Governor uh, Blacksland and and various others. But the guy that they pretty much always go back to would be a guy called James Busby, who was a, a botanist who went back to – he went over to, to, to work on the colonization um, in the early um, 1800s, went back in, 18, in the 1830s, went back to Europe and systematically collected vine cuttings from around, the, uh, around Europe went to France because that was the most famous place at the time in, in those days, uh, did collect grapes on the way back through on South Africa when they were sailing. Uh, and that was that all those grapes got back into Australia in about 1832. So the primary big collection of grape vine species came then and he made duplicate cuttings and they went up to his farm in, in um, the Hunter Valley at that point. What, what is now under valley and then uh, they made their way around to all the colonies as they're expanding and so what we end up having is this amazing collection of um grape vines back from you know that are still some of which are still from that can trace their origins to um the busby collection in the 1830s so now we've got this treasure trove of vines in australia which is amazing because we haven't had phylloxera so it's been amazing right that's a knock on wood knock on wood <laughs> Um, well, it's in little places, but we're pretty. We're, we're trying to be careful and cautious around it. But yes. 
So do you think that that had, well, your soils are the same types of soils that we have here. So, you know, like uh, Santorini doesn't have phylloxera, but it's really not the vines. It's the fact that the phylloxera can't live in that soil. Um, is there That's anything you think? Really. I think sandy soils that don't transfer. I think our soils are actually, our soils are actually really ancient soils. They're old. It's the oldest um, geological formations exist in Australia. But I think there's two things at play. I think one is that the phylloxera hasn't, there's a few things at play that why phylloxera hasn't expanded because it has been in Australia and they do have little bits and pieces of, you know, outbreaks in, in Australia, but it's never been in certain states. And I think the other thing too is that if you've got sandy soils that doesn't transfer as easily, right. we, we don't have, you know, the, our regions are sometimes far apart as opposed to parts of say Italy or Spain or Portugal or France where it's contiguous, it's easier for a spread. Um, and we've got very strict quarantines in states. So I think that's part of why we've managed to maintain it and manage it. And right now there's very, very, very cautious phylloxera um, infestation zone practices where, you know, I was t talking to a friend of mine who went and did harvest in the Yarra Valley where there is flock. And he said he spent all his days helping out basically washing stuff all oh. day long. Watch cars, tires when they come from one venue to another, spraying them, buckets, bins, everything. So there's a lot of, a lot of care and maintenance that goes into that. So. Okay. Uh, that's, uh, that, that was something I remember when I was doing my studies that, you know, you don't really think that it's going to spread through a tire, you know, and that's really oh, a big thing. Geez. So, you know, uh, farm equipment's one of the worst. Right. Farm equipment. And then, hey, my neighbor needs, you know, to borrow my tractor or whatever. And whoop, there it goes right across yep. to the next farm. There it is. Right. Uh, yeah. It's scary stuff, but it's uh, I'm glad it's not um, an issue there. Um, so white wine production is Australia's largest market, followed by the red um, in a close second. And then there's even this portion of this wonderful sparkling wine. Uh, what are the major grape varieties that people can expect in Australia? And, I, you know, it's. It's broad, but no, the, the, you can you can trim it down to the classic varieties. And then I was looking at it with classing and emerging and by emerging doesn't mean the these varieties i'll t tell you about in a minute haven't been there for a while it's just that they're starting to emerge as being more significant players but um white variety the chardonnay is the most planted white variety in australia right now um then uh you've got i think actually the most planted variety is shiraz followed by chardonnay followed by cabernet and then it's a bit of a mish mishmash of uh, various varieties you know pinot noir is actually up there um, Merlot and some other classic varieties, and then it's just there's there's literally just over a hundred commercially significant varieties in Australia. Oh. So it's the, a lot. The diversity is is really there, and and I think that's also something I've been trying to have a message I've been trying to drive home is that yeah, for sure, the most planted varieties and and the most prominent varieties we know and love they're, they're out there, but. And that doesn't tell the whole picture. You know, it's like saying, I don't know, pick any country. It's like, you know, yes, we love Italy, but they only grow Sangiovese, right? It's like, well, we know that's not true. <laughs> um, but, you know, dominant for sure, Shiraz, Chardonnay, and Cabernet. And then you can down the edges of a lot of really cool stuff. Is, do you, Shiraz is probably the number one red? 
Yeah, and the most planted variety period out of the, we've got 140,000 hectares thereabouts. Those uh, figures always go up and down. It's just a bit under 140,000 hectares and about 43,000 hectares is Shiraz and it's grown in virtually every region across the country. So I get this asked all the time of me and I really don't have an answer to it. Why do they stick, or I should say, why do we stick, whichever, but why are they sticking to Shiraz versus Syrah? Um, do, do you think that that poses, uh, when it comes abroad, when it comes domestic to the United States, do you think that that adds to some confusion or are they, they want to stick to it because it's their heritage? Oh, I think actually now we have we pretty much own the term Shiraz, and it, it's because it's been there for such a long time that people now they associate it. And actually, not everywhere is calling it Shiraz anymore. There are some places calling it Syrah, and some producers using the term Syrah as the distinguishing point. But I'll come back to that in a minute. But no, I think I, I think there's the origins of that variety are, are much debated. There was a period of time where they thought that actually. Um, the origins were around the, the what was then the Persian town of um, Shiraz. Therefore, that's actually since been disproven. But the point is, if you look at old documentation in, in Australia, the old um, reports of cuttings and what have you, Siras or Sirkast was, was something that was in there as well and that sort of got shortened and chopped and changed as language tends to do, especially the English language, which you know is arguably the most bastardized language on the planet. <laughs> With origins in everywhere, but and they just like, we just ended up with Shiraz that that, that you know w- that has stuck for the most part. But that being said, Yarra Valley is making what many many people um, in Yarra Valley are calling it Syrah. And when quizzed on that, um, I always thought, well, is this more complicated? And they said, but the biggest problem usually is domestic. In that, if people pick a bottle of Shiraz and they're expecting a richness and a ripeness and a certain style that they may be more accustomed to, they may be disappointed in Yarra because Yarra is, is more medium weight, cool climate Shiraz, therefore um, is a different expression and that's why they typically use the word Shiraz. I'm in two minds when I think about that. And I'd like to live in the world of like, hey, if you want a cool climate, you're out from Australia, go to Yarraville. We're not quite there yet. (laughs) (laughs) And that's that's actually what I have been hearing is that the Australian winemakers are choosing to call it uh, Syrah versus Shiraz, depending on what their stylistic version of that wine is. Yeah, a more restrained, medium weight wine that would be a bit more sort of savoury and red fruited. People tend to towards, but it's it's not it's not really the same across the board. But generally speaking, you it's like a, a little bit akin to the whole Pinot Gris Pinot Grigio approach in the New World, where if you're making a Northern Italian style, a light crisp style, you'd label it Pinot Grigio, and if you're making a fuller, richer style, you'd call Pinot Gris. But I mean, even that's not really clear cut. But yeah, that's happening in Australia now a, a little bit, which just adds to the complexity and the fun and interest but yeah so but mostly most i'd say probably even at this point nine out of ten bottles of shiraz if not more of shiraz you pick them up and it'll say shiraz on the label rather than syrah and the people in australia are they are they uh kind of focusing in for consumption do is there a favorite grape variety for their consumption in terms of sales within the country i don't have the exact numbers but i know that for whatever people say about Shiraz and Chardonnay, that's still they're still the most. I would argue they're still the most popular varieties. Same thing with people said anything but Chardonnay in the U.S. And then you look at the numbers, and it was everything but <laughs> nothing right. but Chardonnay was it, if really right. was going. But 
So I think there's a bit of that going on. But what I will say that is happening in Australia, and I actually think it's a global shift. Um, I think people are far more apt to experiment and not nearly as as, as um, varietally or even brand loyal as they used to be. They're just happy to happy to experiment. What you'll see nowadays in Australia is people trying all sorts of really cool and different things and very, very happy to do so. Not like I'm sticking to my you know, Shiraz from this particular region. They're just they're, they're happy to experiment and try different things now, and I think that's really cool. And are the winemakers, uh, you know, we, you know, there's the GSM, but then there, you know, for here we have GSM, but then people are putting, you know, petite verdot, or they're like, you know, they're they're like mad scientists, like let's see what can we throw in to, you know, make these wines intriguing and interesting and funky. Are, do is that going on in Australia? Also? Oh, it's happening, yeah. All the cool, hip, trendy things you're seeing anywhere else in the world have been happening in Australia uh, uh, along along very similar lines. I think there's a few things emerging that i'm i'm seeing which i'm because i think it's really hard to you know in the last 10 years and, and and watching australia evolve as you do with any country i've been in this doing this for a long time and burgundy was one of my favorite places and that's why i got into the business and while the appellations haven't changed and different things you know have remained static the style of burgundy is has evolved and changed and you know when i was a young sommelier trying to buy basic bourbon rouge Forget it. It was not really drinkable. Now, all of a sudden, basically, so everything changes and moves. And so, I think that's you know true of every of every country. But the one thing, if there is something that I'm seeing, you know, I don't like to pinpoint one thing, but there's a freshness, and you probably saw that when you were tasting through. Is that there's just this vibrancy and energy in the wines of like whether it doesn't matter what variety, what region, there's sort of an energy and freshness to the wines, which I think is really cool. And when you investigate this if it's if it's possible to investigate i'm always kind of curious you go to barossa you go to mclaren valley you know this was pointed out to me in mclaren valley warm climate region very mediterranean climate and a lot of the guys saying look you know we look at our climate and there's a certain time of year we got richer and full body uh, full body reds but for the most part eight to nine months of the year look at our climate look at what we eat we want vibrance and, and juicy fresh so even from varieties like grenache which is one of my pet favorites right now you can have a beautiful, big, full-bodied, age-worthy style of Grenache from McLaren Vale, or you can have a light, juicy, almost Pinot-esque style, um, and anything in between, and that could be suited to, to, to all sorts of different cuisines. So I feel like some of the wine styles are being shaped a little bit around lifestyle as, as much as it is, and sometimes less about variety, it is about style, and we're seeing that with you know, globally with the natural wine movement sometimes. Right. What's in the wine? Who cares? It's a style. Which I think is kind of cool. Right, right. Sometimes, and I think people are willing to try uh, different things, try some, oh, I've never heard of this before. All right, I'm going to try it. Oh, I've never, you know, tasted this before. I'm going to try it. Yeah. There's the guy who's up in the Adelaide Hills that I love this one because it's a little bit of fun too because he's, that he's taking a bit of a, 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 a um, sort of a page or, or maybe, you know, making some fun with the whole Van de Soif in, in France, which is a... You know, a drinking wine and he calls it his vanda sofa and uh and it's it's absolutely delicious and i asked him what's in it and he said oh, it doesn't matter because it's like 15 different varieties it's a style there's some pinot there's some this there's some gewurz there's a whole bunch of other things and like who cares what's in it it's about what is one you sit back on the sofa and drink thought, oh that's cool vanda swaffle vanda sofa i'll take the vanda sofa please there you go there's a there's a winery in uh paso that is uh very well i don't know how you can say well known but if you're in that area well known for their very um 
risque labels, let's say, um, some labels that I don't know how they get uh, past the TTB, uh, you know, and get their cola, um, but they have a bueno sofa. And it's kind of the, it, it's the kitchen sink wine, you know, it's the, it's the kitchen it's, sink. It's, it's fun. I mean, we're, 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 I think it's funny. We think we're really inventive in the wine business and in some areas we are in the viticulture and in winemaking, but it's really funny how we're still all on 750 mil bottles with corks in them. And so I think it's nice to see some people having some fun and making some, you know, and, and that's happening in Australia. And it's, it's, it's a really, you know, it's a really exciting time as well because this adds to the, complex tapestry that is a, whatever's going on in a particular country and that's the, that's what's happening in Australia it's great and now a word from our sponsor did you know that Dracina Wines has a wine club we named it the Chalk Club Draco is on our label but Vegas was getting a bit jealous so we decided he deserved to be our wine club spokesdog in Las Vegas, betting chalk means that you are betting on all of the favorites, and we're gambling that once you taste our wines, we will become one of your favorite wineries. The club is simple, yet a bit different than most. We don't ask for a lot of commitment like others do. Choose between three tiers, the Sweet 16, where you'll receive three bottles twice a year and get 25% off all orders. Sign up for the Elite 8 and get 30% off all orders and receive four bottles twice a year. Or make it to the final four and receive six bottles twice a year, as well as receiving 35% off all purchases. All tiers receive discounted shipping, are customizable, and are eligible for unlimited referral bonuses. Add $15 to your bank for each person you refer. Head to www.dracinawines.com or the link in the show notes to find out all the Chalk Club has to offer and to sign up. We've stocked the odds so that you can get our award-winning wines without breaking the bank. So this is going to be kind of a rough question uh, because we could spend weeks and weeks studying this and learning about this. But just in a very brief way, can you give a description of the main regions of like what somebody can expect from the main region, like a warm climate, cool climate, they're more known for Pinot, they're more known for this. Um, and I'm going yeah, to... Um, I'll do I'll do the as best I can. I'll try and maybe separate. I like the idea of warm versus cooler climate because we have both in Australia. So, um, and I'll look at you know just consider maybe what's mostly available in the US because you know we have sixty five different regions in Australia. Right, yeah, some we, you'll never see here in the US. It's just not going to happen. So I'll talk about the major. Maybe I'll sort of break down the sort of the top top sort of half dozen or so. So for warm climate or warmer style uh, warmer climate wines, we can look at you know Barossa Valley, McLaren Vale. Um, probably Coonawarra, I think, are three, and the Clare Valley. Are, you know, Clare Valley is a bit sort of borderline. Um, the Barossa Valley, famous for Shiraz, really good Grenache, home to some of the oldest um, Shiraz, Grenache, Morbedro vines on the planet, never mind anything else. Really unique in that they were settled by Germans. The German expansion there was really, like if you think about the names, Henschke, Dutchke, mm. you know, Lehmann. So really cool German influences that's really had an impact, a profound effect on on the wine and food culture there. Um, and yes, it's warm climate doesn't mean all the wines are big and full bodied. Some are, and you can you can see some real restraint happening now through you know viticultural practices and picking a bit earlier. But I think Barossa would be a classic. You know, it's not. I don't like to make the comparison of Napa, but it's kind of like our Napa Valley, if you like. Okay. Not quite, but whatever, you know. Uh, then you've got McLaren Vale, which is similar in some cases, but it's definitely much more maritime influence. It's only an hour or two 
be a two-hour drive from from um, Barossa. Similar varieties, Grenache and, and, and Shiraz do very well, but, you know, just a slightly different kind of flavor profile and character in those wines. And the very cool thing that's happening, you see this a lot in other regions, but very specifically in McLaren Vale, experimentation with other varieties, um, mostly southern Mediterranean varieties, with an eye to looking at climate change and what varieties hold on to acidity and freshness in warmer climates. So if you're in McLaren Vale these days, in the summertime, you're drinking Fiano, Vermentino, oh. or Nero Avila, or um, Sagrantino, and they're actually, and that's not just a a little gimmicky thing. It's something that's been going on for the last ten or fifteen years, and it's not done because people thought, oh, it should be easy to sell Vermentino from Clarendale. Not at all. It's about planting varieties that long term might end up being more suited, certainly with white, white varieties. And that's that's kind of an exciting thing. So, right. in terms of a warm climate region, Clarendale is a really exciting place to be right now. Um, while we're still hovering around South Australia and, and Adelaide, you can do you can literally 15 minutes from the downtown core of Adelaide, you can be in the Adelaide Hills, and while you will see Shiraz and Chardonnay and and, um, and varieties that are you know you might know, that's actually one of the cooler climates in South Australia. You're getting elevation, you're going up 400 meters, so you're getting cooler climate, good sparkling wine, good Chardonnay, actually really good place for Pinot Noir, arguably one of the best places in South Australia for Pinot Noir. So right there in, in, the, in the space of an hour or two, you can be in warm climate and cool climate, and that's kind of exciting. Um, so, oh, boy, there's so many. How often we've got. I think in South Australia, they'd probably be the two or three most famous. With Also, a little bit further south of Adelaide, you get into Coonawarra, which is just Cabernet country, period. It's one of our famous. I mean, that's our Napa Valley strip, if you like, of like famous Cabernet. Um, but then, actually, you know, so you got, that would be a flight into Adelaide, and you could see all of that around you, and even maybe make a quick trip up to the Clare Valley and drink some ridiculously gorgeous Riesling. Yeah. Um, so that's sort of a, a region that's starting to cool and warm. Victoria into the state of Victoria. Uh, people don't know the states much in Australia, but the state of Victoria, Melbourne's the largest city, and in and around Melbourne, we are in the dress circle of Pinot Noir. Uh, production and that's where it's exciting for Pinot Noir, Chardonnay and cooler climate varieties. Again, a glib assessment but Yarra Valley, brilliant for Chardonnay, brilliant for Pinot, same for Mornington Peninsula with a more heavy accent on Pinot as in 50% of the vineyard lands planted to Pinot and anywhere around there is, is, is brilliant for, for, for both of those varieties along with other things too. It's not it's not like it's a, a mono varietal um, look to those regions but yeah Yarra is pretty exciting and very accessible, and what we're talking there is cooler, cooler climate for sure. Where else can we go? Um, major city of Sydney, um, you're going to be heading up to Hunter Valley, two hours from Sydney. Hunter Valley, famous for arguably, not arguably, definitely the most unique expression of semion anywhere on the planet. These wines are light-bodied but can age for decades and turn into a really, really special sort of style and, and become sort of a unique gift to the world as far as I'm concerned. And you've got Shiraz, but Shiraz from a, with a slightly different look and feel to it than you would find in Barossa or McLaren Vale in that they're more medium-bodied, more savoury, more red-fruited from McLaren, uh, from uh, Hunter Valley than they are in, in, in say, Barossa or McLaren. Are we getting any no. – um, I'm sorry, are we getting any no. uh, late harvest – Simeon, you can. You can. It's not a huge thing, but there's no. one famous one from De Bordoli called Noble One, which comes from the river, uh, Riverina area down in uh, in um, 
southern part of uh, New South Wales, the state of New South Wales, and it's magnificent. Not a lot, though. We don't, I mean, we've got our sweet wines, we've got some late harvest wines, and our sweet wines are very, very good, but uh, we don't have a lot of Botrytis. It's drier in Australia, so Botrytis okay. isn't really, you've got to be in the right spot, and you'll find examples. Our sweet wines, uh, our famous sweet wines are fortified. We've had a long history of fortified. Um, one more quick trip, you have to go right across the country because you cannot have this discussion. There's two more places we're going to go to, actually. Got to go across to Margaret River, okay. uh, which is in Western Australia, um, one of the most famous regions for, for Cabernet in Australia, but also year in, year out for the last 20 years, the most awarded Chardonnays in the in Australia have come out of Margaret River. So brilliant place for, for, for Chardonnay and Cabernet. Uh, and then there's Tasmania. There's just something about Tasmania that is captivating in general. Captivating to North Americans especially. I think it's the Bugs Bunny cartoon, not 100% sure. But <laughs> I'm pretty sure there's be. a bit of fascination. It could be. I, I'm uh, personally cool. fascinated because of Tanzanite. I mean, now I... You're, I now, you're, now, you're, now, you're, yeah, now you're drinking, though. You're drinking Tasmania. Yes, now, so yes. Um, but that is... That's exciting territory right now because there's been a lot of uh, plantings there. Well, actually, it's not a lot. I shouldn't say there's been plantings in Tasmania for many years, but it's been small, and it still is small. I think we might be hovering at about 1,600 hectares right now compared to the national, but more and more people are sneaking down there, buying property. I know many wineries from the mainland that are very excited about not just potential but also with climate change and this is what people are doing not just in Australia but globally. Where are we going to go next because, you know, we have to go up or get closer to the ocean. So now I know know a Yarra Valley producer, a guy guy I know up in the Yarra just bought a property in in Tasmania, which historically people go, you nuts, it's too cold, it's too far south, it's too cold. He doesn't think so. He hasn't planted it yet, but he's looking at this going, we can make something work here, and it's very, very exciting. And Tasmania is, is just, it's like nowhere else in Australia, too. It's a very unique, beautiful island that's, you know, unbelievably pristine, and, yeah, it's it's, it's awesome. Yeah. All right, so I'm going to put you on the spot because nobody can say they have any, you know, one child is better than the other. They love them all equally. But do you Some have more equally than others? Yes, yes. Which one is a little bit more equal in your mind to your palate? So I'm not even saying anything else to your palate, which is uh, a little bit higher. Oh man, I'm, in my job, I have to. My job with Wine Australia, I love all e- regions equally, and all wineries the same. No, obviously we have our things we're excited about. I couldn't just put it down to one thing, but I do think there's a couple of categories potentially that might be exciting. And I think, um, as mentioned, Grenache. I think what we are doing with Grenache right now. I just did a presentation in Montreal. That's on three sixty. And everyone was like, wow, that's amazing. And it's been something happening for the last 10 years, which is this full show of what Barossa and, and McLarenville can now do with Grenache. It's a really exciting proposition, largely because I think, we'll, especially we've been in the business for a while, and you go, oh, I know what Grenache is. It fits into this little yeah. narrow sort of frame, right? It's, it's full-bodied. It's alcoholic. It's this. Well, <clears throat> if you – Let's you know, try this again. Up, yeah, let's try this again. And I like, I like it when we, 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 dis- we have rediscoveries like that. So now you're seeing a full spectrum of all the different faces, the, the sort of ethereal, perfume, aromatic side of Grenache, along with the full-bodied and spicy side, which I think is exciting. Pinot and Chardonnay, two classic varieties that, that everyone knows globally. We've never been in a better place than we are right now with both of those varieties right now. Um, just you know, finding the best zones for them, the best you know vineyards within those right sort of the climate zones for both those varieties, and we're now making beautiful balanced, detailed and, and, and delicate examples of those wines um, across the country. 
And frankly, as boring as this might sound to some people, you know, go, go back and look at Shiraz. What we're doing with that variety and always have done, never mind how that's evolved, um, you've got to remember it's, it, it, it's, it's grown in every single region that we have in Australia, some to a less, you know, lesser degree than others. Um, but there's no place on the planet that can show the full spectrum of what that variety is capable of producing than we can. It's just that most people don't know that because they think, oh, yeah, I've had Shiraz. It's either soft and fruity or big and full body and spicy. Well, they exist and will always exist, but everything in between, you know, you know seeing you know, the, the uh, aromatic, beautiful examples coming out of uh, cooler climates, I think it's a really exciting time to go back. And there was a, I don't know where it was, I think it was a Kellogg's Cornflakes commercial. I can't remember where it was. It said, try us again for the first time. And I just love um, that. I think it's so good. It's like, you know, we all know it, but yeah, yeah, we know what it's like. It's over here. But like, go back and have a look at it again. And I, I thought that was a really, I thought that was a really, um, a really cool, cool place to look at it. But anyway, but yeah, so I think, you know, I, I can't just say one thing, but there are certain regions I love to visit that just tweak with you. I do love visiting the Yarra Valley. Um, there's just something about the diversity there. It's proximity to, to a major city that I think has inspired the food and the wine and the, the culture in the, the region. I love Margaret River as well. It's the most remote region you'll ever go to. It's like four, three or four hour drive south of uh, Perth. And when you get there, it's like, whoa, where am I? This is just so totally beautiful and totally different. So, so if somebody yeah, was... I said it, I have favorites. There you go. <laughs> if, if somebody was planning a wine trip to Australia, what would you say would be the minimum amount of time that they should be dedicated to get a good feeling of what we've got going on here? Oh, I don't think you can do any serious damage in less than two weeks. You'd need a couple of weeks. But I think if you're going to make your way down to Australia, at least try and have about three weeks. Because obviously you don't want to just do wine, even though I'm happy to just do wine all the time. Um, I think you need at least two weeks. And I'd say three weeks would be ideal. It'd be like, I don't know, it's like saying, you know, you've just got, even just take the West Coast, you've got Washington State, Oregon, and California. How much time for just those three states to have a look at would you say would be appropriate? Like a week in each would be great, right. but uh, obviously that's harder to do. But um, but yeah, I'd say if you can get two weeks and fly to to one of the major cities, like Adelaide's a really good place to to, to kick off a wine journey in Australia, simply because hour and a half north to Barossa, two hours north of Adelaide, you're in um, Clare, Eden Valley, Adelaide Hills, McLaren, all around there, and there's some pretty famous regions. You can get a lot done in two weeks there, and then again Melbourne, same thing. You drag yourself away from the excitement that is Melbourne. You can be in the Yarra Valley in 45, well, depends on traffic, but <laughs> <laughs> technically 45 minutes and the same just traveling south to Mornington Peninsula where you can, you know, you can have a morning surf and have a Pinot Noir at lunch. It's perfect. Ah, that sounds good. <laughs> yeah. So then that they, that would be two focal points. You could go into Adelaide, spend a couple, you know, spend a week there and then fly out and go to Melbourne, yeah. fly to Melbourne. Didn't go to Melbourne and then and uh, yeah, catch a lot of really cool stuff, or drive, do the Great Ocean Road. What's what's that drive about? Uh, it's a bit long. Yeah, it's about a thousand kilometres. Probably yeah, no, you wouldn't want to do that in two weeks. But a lot of good stuff to see in the yeah. in betweens. But uh, but yeah, I think those two focal points would be great. I mean, it's hard because there's just so much to see in two, and it would require a couple of trips. But I'd say in two weeks you could do a week to ten days in Adelaide, and you could spend a, a you know five to seven days in around Melbourne, and you can see you can see a lot. 
get a good sense of it too. You get a good sense of what's happening with warm climate in certain varieties and cool climate in certain varieties. You get a good. When I take trips down there, and I'm doing one again in um, in the spring, that's typically how we would do it. You know, a week or so, and just a little bit over a week in South Australia, either Tasmania, Margaret River in there, or we head up to the Yarra Valley and and Mornington and have a look around there. And if somebody was planning their trip there, um, are the wineries typically open to the public without an appointment? They need an appointment? Are you... Depends. There's plenty of places where you can just show up. And, okay. um, boy, um, we still aren't at that point. Like there are Napa where they're charging for tastings. You can pretty much show up to most wineries and, and, and uh, get involved in the tasting. But some are not open. Some you do need to make an appointment. But certainly there's plenty of wineries in every region that I can think of where you can just show up and during, obviously, the, the correct hours and you can, you can just taste and get a sense of the place. So they have tasting rooms... They have tasting rooms oh, yeah. similar to. We call them we call them cellar doors. Oh, oh, I like that better. That's a, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I like that it's better. Tasting, well, it's the same thing, but we just call it cellar. You know, we just sell that from cellar door, and you go, what? That's that's the that's the expression in Australia. So yeah, plenty of cellar doors where you can just show up and taste. Okay, um, so in terms of production, the the average winery. It, you know, in terms of production, I'm sure there's small wineries and large, you know, large production wineries. But your general bulk, like, what's that? What's that case production that that somebody can expect um, from? Uh, well, it just depends. I mean, I think we're starting to see. I think that's that dynamic has changed a lot in the last ten years. A lot of real small boutique wineries that have sprung up. Some of some that have already been around for a while. Um, God, I know plenty of really exciting wineries in Adelaide Hills that are two to five thousand cases, okay. uh, which is small, and and they're still exporting. Um, I'd say there's a quite a lot that sits that are small to medium sized family run businesses that sit in that ten to twenty thousand case production. Okay. So not not super big. And then there's probably a bit of a jump. That's kind of hard to do. I wouldn't say there's a, a particular zone, and we've got a couple of big companies that are producing large volumes as, as there are in any country. Right. But, but I. It would be hard to say. I think if you add it all up, you know, company by company, there'd be more companies making in and around the ten to 20,000 cases than there are anything else. Okay. So, so not, not big at all. So, right. So that's what I was going to say is the, we, you tend to have more of the boutique you know, wherever you go, you're going to have the, you know, the gallows. You're going to have, you're going to have that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you've, but, got your, you've got your volume productions, yeah, for sure. And are most of them individual wineries or do we have, co-ops do we have you know like oh there's not so much not like it's not the same in the sense that we don't have if we've got 15 we've got 140,000 hectares of vines and i try to put that into perspective whilst australia is known for some large brands like yellowtail and some other uh, big production wines the reality is the vineyard under the area under vine is that is just a little bit less than bordeaux and burgundy combined okay. so it's it's not as big as people think. So the reality is it's not like we have these vast tracts of vineyard lands that require, and with, with um, small farmers requiring a co-op to produce. That's why a lot of the good co-ops in Europe have, have worked that way, is that the producers have been great growers their entire lives, and they just, you know, go, go to a co-op. It doesn't really, we don't have that quite so much in Australia. So it's either grape growers selling to, to other wineries, and more and more, some, sometimes there's grape growers, and, you know, someone that's been making, you know, um, Oliver's Taranga, they've been six generation grape growers, but for the last generation, they're grape growers and winemakers. They started their own winery. So 
that tends to be a path that they would follow. So I think for the most part, you're not seeing co-ops in Australia. You've got some larger companies that are, that are you know, obviously either owning uh, vineyards and buying from them, or you've got small to medium-sized family-run businesses. Okay. Now, what about the trendy stuff, the organic wines, the natural wines, biodynamics? Is uh, Australia diving into this? Yeah, and, and we'll start with the biodynamics and organics. That's something that um, has been evolving and accelerating over the last 20 years or so. Um, although it's fairly safe to say there's a lot of really good bridges. They've always been biodynamic. They just don't talk about it. They just don't feel like that's a marketing uh, advantage to okay. them. They just do it because they, they, they yeah. should, um, which you could argue both sides of that argument, I think. Um, but, you know, I just think of Jasper Hill, Cullen, um, other wineries where they're just, they've always just done that. They're not, it's not something they advertise. They'll talk about it if you ask them. But then even a, a sort of a larger family-run business, Yolumba, for example, has been organic and certified in, in, in some of their vineyards and, and practicing in some of their top vineyards, uh, biodynamics for the last 10 years as well. And they're a slightly larger company, still family-owned, but a larger company. So I think that's something accelerating and also depends on region as to just how far reaching that is. Um, go back to McLaren Vale again, a really great example of a, for want of a better term, green and sustainable region in that they've got all manner of really good practices in play where pretty much everyone's on board to the very least of all organics and sometimes biodynamics, but you know, water recycling and uh, stuff that they're using, stuff they're doing in the vineyards that is sustainable. It's a really exciting uh, piece of the puzzle. Um, so, without a doubt, something that's accelerating. I don't have percentages and numbers, but it's a it's a it's a very uh, important subject of discussion in, in Australia. Uh, natural wines, yep, we got it going on. It's happening in uh, different parts of uh, different parts of the country. I I have to say, uh, I come from a classics background. So natural wine initially for me was a a bit of a struggle. That being said, I'm excited about it on one hand. Because I think. Yeah, we can easily become grumpy old wine people, you know, and, and I just think there's something new and something evolving in this in this space that maybe want to stop and go, okay, what's the excitement here? And old is new again. And, you know, I think what, what we're seeing with the best natural producers in Australia right now is this um, sort of a fine-tuning a bit, this recognition that, you know, maybe wine doesn't just quietly make itself in the corner. Um, that a little bit of a little bit of help along is good, and making excuses for faulty wines is really not the future for um, for uh, for for natural wine. That's sort of a an ethos or, or a sentiment that I'm getting as I'm sort of spending time with some of the best best producers and most of the guys I know and like and love what they're doing is like we don't do anything, we don't add anything, nothing. We will minimal, but we'll put a bit of sulfur in a bottling, and that's that's it. Simply because, hey, I'm not just selling this out my back door. I'm, I'm shipping and trucking this, and I feel like there's a duty of care to my customer. I'm seeing that as a bit of an evolution. I think I think we're seeing that everywhere, <laughs> to be honest. And I yeah. think you know, I love the concept of natural wines. It's made us stop and think about our perceptions. You've done study programs, the whole idea about color and clarity and texture it's like whoa it's all you know throwing that on its ear and i like that on one hand i don't like excuses for poor faulty wines right but that's what we're seeing i think evolving nicely out of australia is that the very best producers in my humble opinion are really there's some exciting wines that make you go oh that's not what i ever had from this region and this variety yeah. kind of like it <laughs> that's good that's good now along those lines um I like, as I was researching the wines from Australia and all of that, 
that the government really does seem to be trying to help promote uh, the the wines themselves and the production of the wines, which I'm not so sure really occurs here. It's like regions do, you know, we get together as a community in Paso and we try to do the best we can. But like the Australian government is also funding um, research to help uh, eliminate pests so to help. Lucky. Yeah, we're so lucky with the AWRI um, and, uh, and other research institutes, but certainly with AWRI, we've always been at the pointy end of the stick with, with a lot of really, really cool research. And I think that's that absolutely categorically benefits uh, not just viticulture, but the industry as a whole, because there's experimentation and, and um research in so many different areas it's, i mean just go to the website australian wine research institute and just look at current projects and it's just and, I, and quite often when i have a group of songs down there we'll if we're in adelaide for any length of time we've got time there i'll do a two or three hour session just touring around and sit down and talk about okay what's going on with i don't know smoke tank technology or or what's going on with pest world the most you know, significant pests that you're dealing with right now and how you're combating them. Uh, it's amazing. We, we're, we're very lucky, and that's honestly a lot of funding goes towards that from, from for, for researchers, as it rightly should. So. That's wonderful. Um, what do you think is Australian, Australian wine's biggest challenge today? Oh, that's a good question. I think it's a challenge generally globally in that I think one of the lovely things as a wine drinker these days is that there's never been a better time to drink wine. And I say that simply because when I got excited about the wine, there were a whole bunch of countries and or regions that were irrelevant that are no longer irrelevant. And we can just pick off the top. It's like when I was a young song in the 80s, Sicily, it was Corvo Bianco, Corvo Rosso and a whole bunch of crappy masala. Not anymore. Okay. Sicily is about as exciting. Southern Italy, and you just get, Greek wine was all about red semen in those days. Now it couldn't be more exciting. So I think, it, while that's a wonderful thing for the drinker, uh, I think for any country or any region promoting wines, and I know you're involved in in Paso, there's it's a crowded marketplace mm-hmm. that makes it. I think that so if there's a challenge, it's like well, there's a lot of good wine from everywhere now, and that's a brilliant thing on one hand and hard. Um, I think one of the challenges that I'm, and I know this will change, it's just a matter of time. I still think there's a little bit of price point sensitivity when it comes to, to Australian wines that people are happy to spend a certain amount slowly, but surely creeping up. And I got this a lot in the last sort of tour. I was in Canada this, this week and, um, I was in Montreal last week, rather than, and then, uh, in, uh, Toronto and it was like oh yes but for that money we can get XYZ and I just think it's at a certain point people will stop saying that like they did in the early days in Napa people didn't want to spend 100 150 dollars on Napa cab now right. they don't even bat an eyelid so it's just a question of building confidence and having you know anecdotally I told an interesting story about a sommelier who's got a wine bar a master sommelier a lovely guy in Florida and he's selling an old vine Grenache that's $90 a bottle, and he's sending, like, I need as many cases as I can get. My customers love it. So get it in the glass, get it in people's mouths, they'll buy it. Right, absolutely. So I think price point sensitivity, I'd say price point sensitivity a little bit until people feel confident, and then more more in a big thing. It's like, hey, it's a busy it's a busy marketplace. We're all we're all looking for we're all looking for, for people to, to pay attention to what we're doing, and um, luckily for the consumers, a lot, but not for us. It makes it much harder for us to find a little place, but you know, we're finding it as you know, every country does. And I think that is, I think that is a big issue is people are not willing to spend that extra five, $10 on something that they're not familiar with, 
where once they get it in a glass, they're all for it. By cases of it. Look at you. Yep. If I said to you before you tried that wine, said, hey, you need to drink Tasmanian sparkling wine, you'd go, yeah, yeah, sure, whatever, in the way you went off to whatever you're most comfortable with. Uh, but you tried it, you were like, i got to find this, i got to get this, and now you've seen it, tried it. Because, I mean, it's like, you know, if you think about it, ultra premium, I mean, $21 isn't cheap, but it's not expensive either, but right. that's not what people are drinking on a daily. You can't get enough of it, and, I, you know, that's awesome. You know, that's just a great, that's it. Get it in your mouth, and you go, yep, I'll buy that, where we go. Right. For me, $21 for that is well worth it well worth my twenty one dollars. You know, you go to Starbucks and the people are spending seven bucks on a drink, right? You know, yeah. I mean, so that's not nearly as much fun. That is nowhere near what that what that is. Absolutely. So true. Um, all right. So, where can people find out more about the wines of Australia, um, social media wise, or on your website, or where can they go to find out more? Website for. Uh, a- Oh, I think we, we're, we're really proud of uh, a website that we've just developed. It's taken a long time with the education team to pull this together. It's called www.australianwinediscovered.com. And it's an education resource where you can just look at subjects. It's been broken down into the major subjects that are sort of topical, I guess, is sort of um, the major varieties, major regions, and then topical things, all of which you can pull up a program on Grenache. And it's you can download the PowerPoint, do what you want with it, and it's kind of yours. And uh, never mind all the other information that's there. Um, there's a lot of really cool information that's been turned into uh, downloadable resources, and it's completely free, not password protected. You just go in there and take it. So WSET people, get on board with that. Uh, every time I have an opportunity to show it to WSET or to Society of Wine Educators, like get on there, and people are just like, oh, you mean I don't have to pay? No, it's free. Oh, so I don't have to pay? It's like... <laughs> yeah, we're, yeah no, it's, it's, we're not used to that. We're not used no, to that. No, no. I like that we've done that and made that. It's a, reminds me of an annoying TurboTax ad. Free, 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 free. It's like, yeah, it's free. So right. it's uh, it's really cool, and we're super proud of that, and, and I encourage anyone to just go and uh, look at look at what's happening there and download and just access, you know, all sorts of information. Um yeah, so I think that's probably the most the valuable resource in the central central place to look for. So. Wonderful. Is there anything that I have missed that you feel that you cannot leave this interview without letting people know about the wines of Australia? Uh, no, I think I think we covered a lot, and if, if that hasn't inspired people to experiment, get out there and try either some. You know, go back and revisit some classics that you might be familiar with and see how they've evolved. And I said, as I said, that's something I think people noted. I noted on the road show with people like, oh, wow, I've actually sat and tasted a bunch of Barossa wines. This is not what I remember. I like what I'm tasting now. And I like that because some of, you know, you know, old classics and comforting wines, isn't that? they evolve and change and then go out and experiment. I mean, man, if you see a Fiano from you know, you know, McLarenville, get it, drink it. You'll be happy. Absolutely. I'm all for it. You know what? I'm all for if there's a wine that you have not had, that that's the only way for you to learn wine. You know, I you can you can stick your nose in a book and you can learn, you know, memorize all of that stuff, whatever the book wants you to learn, but the best way to learn wine is to get it in your glass. The real the real mileage is in the glass, you gotta get it done. Absolutely. All right. Thank you so much for taking your time 
again and again. I apologize for the technical difficulties the first time. Um, Happy to redo. I greatly appreciate it. And honestly, I'm so happy you were able to do it again because I was... I really was impressed with the wines across okay. the board. Uh, there really wasn't a single wine that I tasted that I did not think was a quality wine that night. Good, and, thank, you. Um, thank you. So I really wanted to get the information out to people. So thank you very much. And, uh, Pleasure. I'll have to come and see you at Paso. It's one of the failings in my wine travel career. I haven't been to Paso, and I've got to get that. I've got to sort that out in oh. short order. Absolutely, absolutely. I will love to show you around. I, I am like the Paso, the Paso host, man. I people come; they're supposed to come to taste my wine, and after they taste my wine, I start taking them all over the place to, to yeah. all of the different areas. Um, the problem is that every time I've been in that part of the world, I've been surfing just nearby on the coast, and I was like Cayucos and places like that. I'm like, oh, I should go to Paso, uh, oh, or or I could surf, or I could surf. <laughs> But, you but, know, uh, but, uh, but uh, it's, it's, it's definitely uh, it's so many times I've thought it's time to visit Paso so one of these days soon, I promise. Yes, well, please let me know. I would love to show you around. But um, Thank you. Thank you. And uh, one of these days I'm going to get to Australia. Um, I need to get rid of my full-time job on top of the winery so that I can have three weeks uh, to get That's there. The part, yeah. um, <laughs> and I have to honestly, everybody says to me, you know, you fly so much, you have so many miles. Don't you use your miles to fly back and forth to California? I said, no, my miles are staying in the bank for when I go to Australia, I can fly nicely to Australia. So they're going in the bank. That's that's my mission. Right, right. So thank you very much. Have a wonderful evening. I hope you thank have you. something great in your glass later tonight. And um, I will talk to you soon. Thanks, Lori. Nice chatting. Nice chatting. Have a great night. This has been another episode of Exploring the Wine Glass. Thanks for listening. If you have suggestions on what topics you would like me to discuss, please reach out on social media. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook as Exploring the Wine Glass. I'm also on LinkedIn as Lori Hoyt Budd. Of course, you can always email me at exploringthewineglass at gmail.com. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast catcher to help others find me more easily. Until next week, slancha.